It is a privilege to be here today. Uh, we had a great time. I say we, Scott and Audrey, are with me. They are headed on their way back to Tijuana, Mexico in a matter of hours. So do say hi to them. If you have any leftover Chick-fil-A gift certificates, they may gladly take those as they head on their way to XNA Airport here shortly. Um, <clears throat> we had a wonderful time yesterday, have been deeply encouraged by this body and what God is doing here. Uh, there are some trips that I take that I leave going, Lord, protect that church, look after that church, grow that church, help that pastor to read some good books. And there are churches that I leave that I am encouraged, that the gospel is being preached, that you are hearing the word taught clearly, and that there are things that are growing in your midst, things that you may recognize, things that you may not recognize, that will be harbingers of good things to come in this life and the life to come. And so uh, please be encouraged. I am always <clears throat> strengthened by the thought that God chooses typically not the New York Cities, not the Los Angeleses. He chooses the Nazareths. He chooses the Chaffee Crossings to raise up Adniram Judsons and Amy Carmichaels and Elizabeth Elliots. And so that may be what he has in mind for this church. Today, we're going to get into a couple passages. Before we get there, I'm going to give you a little bit of background for those of you, especially that weren't here yesterday, um, so that you have some context for what I'm going to say to you today. And it makes a little more sense how we press into different things uh, when we're in these passages. So I was uh, just in a very brief synopsis. Um, I went to college in San Diego, California, met my wife there, uh, graduated and went into the workforce as an accountant, eventually worked my way up to a chief financial officer for a Dutch company. I worked in the Netherlands quite a bit and a little bit in some other European countries and was challenged into missions through reading the Bible and through my local church and the confirmation of the elders of my local church uh, to take the gospel where it had never been before. And so in 2003, my wife and I left San Diego, and we headed out for the country of Papua New Guinea. We learned the national language of the country first, and then there was a list of seven particular people groups who had been asking for missionaries for five years or more, on that list, and they, the second one on the list was this place called Yembi Yembi. And the day came for us to fly in uh, to the, the original place that we had chosen. It was this village called the Tuwadi people, and it was a larger place than Yembi Yembi. And uh, we got there down to the airfield, and the pilot landed with a little Cessna 206. And he says, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is it's a great flying day. The bad news is where we were going to drop you off at, the airfield there, they had six inches of rain last night, and the airfield is underwater. There's a river running right through it. So we're not going there today. What's your second choice? And we pulled out the list, and the second choice was this place called Yembi Yembi. And so we quickly scribbled out a note on a piece of paper uh, that said, we're coming to see your village because you've been asking for seven years for missionaries. Uh, please be kind. That was the gist of it. And so we rolled up the note emptied out a water bottle, and we shoved the note into the water bottle, and we took off in a Cessna 206, flew over the village of Yembi Yembi, and then we got really close down near the treetop level, and we dropped the note out. I threw the note out of the window, and I remember this little kid running to try and catch the note, and I'm thinking, we're going to kill the first Yembi Yembi we meet. It's going <laughs> to drill him in the head, and it's going to be horrible. <clears throat> he didn't catch it. 
Uh, we don't know if they could read it or not. It was in the national language, and we kept flying, and we flew for another 45 minutes over a mountain range, and we landed at a nearby airfield, and then we started motor canoeing to get into Yembiembi. And we motor canoed for seven hours, and when you arrive in Yembiembi, uh, the typical greeting is they take a big hunk of mud, they shove it into your face, they push it all the way down to your Adam's apple, then they take diced up flower petals, throw them at your face, and now it sticks to the mud, and now you're beautiful. Now you're ready to come into the village, and that was our experience uh, getting there. And we ended up doing two or three trips till we arrived and we said we're going to come Uh, we went back out the first trip and we told our church we told our our wives and our kids that were out there and the uh, mission leadership this is the place we think we should go to Uh, they agreed with us and so we ended up settling among the yambiambis we built houses among them we didn't have an airfield for the first two years Uh, we started learning their language learning how to speak like they speak uh, learning how to understand their culture, understand all of the aspects of the Yembiembi world so that when the gospel came, it would come with clarity and it would come with an understanding of what they already believe. Good missionaries and good Christians know their local culture. They know their co-workers' worldview. They understand those who they work with. They understand their family, especially their unsaved family, the way that they attack life, the way that they see things. And missionaries are no different. And so... We learned their worldview, and finally, in January of 2008, we started teaching, and we did not start in Matthew, we didn't start in Romans, we started in Genesis 1-1, and we started walking them through the God of the Bible and how this God was so different than their gods, and it was always, here's what the God of this book says, and by that time, we had developed an alphabet for them, we had taught them how to read and write. And they were following along in their translated scripture portions. And so we would teach, we would read it again, we would teach, we would read it again, and then we would act things out because they didn't have movies, they didn't have studios, there was no MGM or Fox, uh, there was only us in bedsheets and shepherd's costumes. So um, <clears throat> we would act these things out for the MBMBs. And during the time as we're teaching, we're teaching about this God who is so different from their gods. This God who makes everything perfect the first time. He doesn't make mistakes and then he tries to fix things and so that's how crocodiles came into existence. Or he doesn't do things and then he has regrets later. No, he does things and he does them perfectly. And he makes all things good. And we took the MBMEs. We had a teaching house of about this. It's maybe a little bit bigger than this gathering where we're at right now, and we've got about a 1,000 Yembi Yembis that are jamming in to hear these talks during the day, and we're going for about three and a half hours each time. And the Yembis have never sat in institutional learning before, so this was stretching them, and there'd be like dogs and pigs running through in the middle of the teaching time, and so you were dealing with the elements, so to speak. And we taught about this God who made all good foods, and we had a canoe about as long as this open space right here, and we flipped it over, and on the back of it, we spread out all of the foods from the Yembiembi world. The Yembis have 16 different kinds of bananas. They have 14 different kinds of sago, and we would cut all these foods up into a little bit, and we would taste them. Does God eat food? No. The Bible says he doesn't eat food. Why did he make such incredible variety? He made them because he loves you. And he loves me. This is the God of this book. And the Yembis started falling in love with this God who is so different than their gods. And then we flew in foods from other places, from Australia, that they'd never tasted before in their life. 
and tasting all of these things from this wondrous God. And then God makes Eve and he brings her to Adam and there's this incredible interaction that happens and we see God bringing all of these things to fruition. And it was just this massive party. What a good God. He's so different than our gods. And the Yembies, <clears throat> I was explaining this yesterday to the gathered group, the Yembies aren't like you guys. You guys are a very normal North American audience. Uh, you know the appropriate times to clap, to sing, to stand, to say something spontaneous, which is very rare. Um, but the Yembies had never sat in a situation like this. And so if they like what you're saying, even to this day, if you're teaching in Yembi Yembi, if we can get Blake over there one of these days, uh, they will yell anytime they like something that you're saying from anywhere. They'll cup their hands to their mouth and they'll go, keep talking, this talk is good to my belly. Because the belly is the seat of their emotions. Ours is our heart, my heart is broken, my heart is full. That's the North American way of understanding emotions. Theirs is the belly. But if they don't like what you're saying, at the same time, they'll yell from anywhere, shut your mouth, I'm about to throw this talk up, because it's coming from their belly. So while you're teaching during these times, you know if they're tracking, you know if they're liking it, if they're not liking it. This is all happening while you're teaching. And so we're getting into Genesis 1, 2, and then we get to Genesis chapter 3, the hinge point of all humanity. And we get to Genesis chapter 3, and we start teaching about what happens when Adam and Eve take the fruit and take a bite. And they said, no, 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 show it to us, show it to us. And so what we we had already a skit lined up, and I was Satan. I had this black bed sheet that I put on and had these uh, particular expressions. And my coworker's wife, she's Eve, and we're walking around, and as we're starting to do this skit, the Yembies are getting closer and closer. There's no real organized seating. You're sitting on canoes that are flipped over. That's about it. And they're starting to crouch closer and closer. And so we're walking around in an area about five feet wide, and she's reaching out to grab the fruit, and I'm whispering to her, Eve, Eve, take the fruit. It'll be good. Your eyes will be open. You'll be just like God. And the Yembies can't stand us. Remember, these are unsaved people. And they're yelling things that I can't say from the pulpit. Hey, smart lady. Hey, lady, look at your belly. Where do you think all that food came from? God is good. Don't do these things. Don't do this. She's reaching out to grab the fruit. And one of the Yembies jumps up, <clears throat> grabs her hand, and pulls her hand down. And we have to stop the skit. And she, she's going to eat the fruit. I know, but the story goes on. The talk will continue, I promise. And she pulls her hand back, and we restart the skit. She grabs the fruit. She takes a bite. The thousand yembies go quiet. And we start walking through the ramifications of the fall, the separation from God. When we moved into Yembi Yembi, pain in childbirth, when we moved in, nearly 25% of all of the girls that were giving birth died in childbirth. This wasn't some hypothetical idea. This was real. From dust you came to dust you will return. Many of you haven't been to a funeral in the tropics. What happens to the human body? How quickly it is consumed by the earth again. These are real things. And the reality of this, and we had a, a tree right outside of our teaching house. We went out and we ripped a branch off and we hung that branch from the little table that I was teaching from. And as the weeks went by and we stretched into three months, that branch turned down and the leaves started turning from brown to black and then they started falling off. The promise of God that when our ancestor broke out from God, that ramification would trickle down to us today. But there's another promise in Genesis chapter three. And the promise is that someday I will send someone. I will send someone who will make things right between God and man again. Someone will have the power to put the branch back in the tree, to make things right. 
And we went to the next lesson the next day where we were talking about Cain and Abel. And I'll never forget this. As we start introducing Cain, one of the Yembies stands up in the back and he goes, wait, 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 stop the talk, stop the talk. Because we just introduced Cain. He goes, is he the one? I said, what do you mean? And he's yelling from the back. He goes, is he the one who's going to put the branch back in the tree? Is he the one who's going to make things right between God and man like it was before? And I said, no, it's a great question. It's not. And he sits back down, and I mean, there's insults raining down on him. But the people who are honest will say, good question. That was really good. And guys, I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't been there. But every Old Testament character that we introduced, from Abraham to Isaac to David to Solomon, Moses, every one of them, someone stands up or asks the question, is he the one? Is he the one who is going to make all of these things right again? And that's the whole trajectory of the Old Testament. If you haven't read the Old Testament with the eyes of when is the one coming? When is the one going to come who will make things right with God and man again? You haven't read the Old Testament in the way that it was meant to be read. And the Yembis are waiting and waiting, and we go through two and a half months of talking the way that the Israelites wandered through the desert, the way that they were taken off into slavery, the way that they were subjugated, waiting for the one who would bring all things, make all things new again. And finally, we get to John, and we started getting into the New Testament, and they don't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. These are all books from God's prophets that are written down from his word, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so we get to John chapter 1, and we said the one is coming very soon. And we started learning about John the Baptist. And as you get into John chapter 1, we remember reading for the first time, John chapter 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we had about 11 Yembe Yembe stand up in the back, and one of them yells out, this one that Jono is talking of, is he the one, or are we waiting for another? Guys, it was a privilege of my life to say, no, he's the one. He's the one. Oh, man. And I mean, people start yelling from this. Stop the talk of John who dunks in water. We don't want to hear about him. Tell us about this one. <laughs> and we kept going, and we kept teaching, and we kept... Uh, going for another month and a half and finally in April 23, 2008 for the first time in the history of the BC's language to have people who understand that Jesus Christ died for them that in their place, in their stead all of the songs that we sang this morning I am made new again by the righteousness of another that this one stands in my place all of these debts, all of the sin that I have accrued the sins that I've done, the sins that I am inherited because I'm a child of Adam and Eve those are all washed away by the blood of the one, by the blood of this Jesus who died in my place. The Yembis call him the bridge man, the one who takes us from Satan's side to God's side, who brings us to the other side. See, the Yembis, when we cross bridges in Yembi Yembi, there's huge rivers about as wide as this room and some of them, and we'll drop big old trees across them. Some of them will be even wider. And the older saints... Some of them, or most of them aren't saints, but the older folks and the young kids aren't able to walk across the bridge on their own. Someone has to pick up that individual and carry them to the other side. And the, big, the, the thing that the bridge man does that he says to everyone that he carries across, your only job when you're being carried across, hold still. Don't do anything. The more you do, the more likely we fall into the river and we both perish. 
The bridge man takes you from Satan's side to God's side, and it's all his work. It's not of yourself. It's not anything that you can do. As you add to it, you diminish the possibility of making it to the other side. It's only through him and him alone that you will make it to the other side. And finally, we started teaching after we had the believers and we started gathering them into a church. We started going through many of the same things that we went through earlier this morning here. Uh, they wrote their own songs. We continued to translate the scriptures. It took us nine years before we would finish the uh, Yembiemi New Testament. And then the Old Testament uh, is still being worked on in parts of it. But we had the Pentateuch in place and all of the other different gospels and the prophets that we were feeling confident with. And in 2016, we returned to the United States. So that's a brief synopsis of where we come from and what we're talking about. So turn over to Matthew 28, verse 16. Let's get into our two texts for today as we look at the Great Commission and the local church. If you're taking notes, that's the title of this sermon, The Great Commission and the Local Church. There are four times that we hear of the Great Commission besides this passage in Matthew 28. There's one in Mark 16, 15. There's another account recorded in Luke 24, 47. Another in John 20, 21. And then Acts 1.8. Two of these are prophecies of what is to come. And three of them are commands. Go and do this. The clearest Great Commission passage that we have is this passage in Matthew 28, verse 16 through verse 20. So let's read this passage together. And then I'm going to pull three things from this passage. And then we'll get into our main passage for the day. So Matthew 28, verse 16 says this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. And this is the marching orders of our God. This is the word of God. This is the final verses to that book of Matthew. That's the end of the book of Matthew. This is the thing that Jesus wanted ringing in his disciples' ears. This is what the church is about. We go and we continue to press on into other areas. So three areas, if we're looking at this passage, three things to bring out, there's a multitude, but number one, we are men and women under authority. If you're taking notes, we are men and women under authority. If you call yourself a Christian, you are no longer your own. You're a person under authority. Your life, your gifts, your passion, your abilities, all of those come under the king's authority. There's an occupation that Paul was fond of using to describe this type of lifestyle when he would talk about being under authority, and that occupation is as a soldier. Soldiers don't decide where they sleep. They don't decide the food that they eat. They don't even decide the missions that they go on. That is all dictated by their commanding officer. And as Christians rightly remember, once you are a child and a son of God, by grace you have been saved. You've been brought in. There's nothing that you can do. And you're saved into community. You're saved into family. You're saved into eternal life. But you are under another's authority at that point in time. 
Quite often, I'll speak at colleges and various uh, college gatherings, and I'll tell the MBMB story, uh, variations of it, and we'll talk about giving our lives to something that is greater than ourselves. And then I'll have some desperate soul at the end that will come up that's usually some outdoor aficionado, and he'll come up to me and he'll say something like, that's so cool that you're into outdoors and like when we moved into Yembiembi we had to hunt wild boars we talked about this yesterday in the session to, for a boy to change into a man he has to kill a wild boar at night with a spear by himself otherwise he's forever a boy he can never marry in the Yembiembi culture that's just part of the deal and there's other uh, outdoorsy things we have a lot of crocodiles and things like that and somebody will come up to me and they say, that's so exciting that you're into the outdoors, that you're into hunting, that you're into that kind of thing and roughing it and living in tents and stuff like that. And I usually don't have the heart to tell them, my wife and I are not the outdoors people. We come from San Diego, California. We like sushi. We like smog. We like city. Like that, that's who we are. We're not into that. I'm never into 110 degree weather with 90% humidity. And that was pretty much what we lived in for 13 years. Just hot, thick. I mean, you wake up and it's like you're breathing just water going straight into your lungs. But when did it become about what you're into? When did it become about what you're good at? What you're passionate about. That's the new one since I came back in 2016. Well, my passion leads me to, you know what most of your passions will lead you to? Jail. We don't follow our passions if we're Christians. We follow another's passions. We follow another's commands. We follow another's directions. Because if we follow our own, we're destined to end up on a path of futility and walking away from the king. We don't follow our own heart. And, I'm gifted in this way. No, your gifts are subjugated to another. You're a person under authority. That's who you are as you sign and you become part of the Christian family. And then number two, we see in this passage, the glory of God among all peoples. So based on this authority, in our passage, we see go and make disciples of all nations. There's a lot of sermons about this phrase, nations. We know that the word nations does not mean political nation states. We're not talking about Sweden and Norway and the United States. We're talking about ethnes. The Greek for this is pantata ethne or the word that we get ethnicities from. Go to all of the ethnes that are on the earth and make disciples of them. And we keep pressing until all ethnes, all locations, all people groups have the gospel and the church among their peoples. One of the books that I was so encouraged by when I was on the field was a book by John MacArthur called Twelve Ordinary Men. And it's about the twelve apostles and what they did with their lives and one of the things that is so remarkable about that book is he talks about their personalities from what we can see from scripture and then he talks about what happens to them after the ascension of christ what we know from church history and one of the astounding facts that comes out of 12 ordinary men and if you do any research on the apostles is that of the 12 remember there's 13 actual apostles you had judas who drops out and then matthias who takes his place so we're back up to 12 again. And then you have Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. So we've got 13 apostles here. Of the 13 apostles, 12 of them died in foreign lands. Only one of them died in his home country, James. James dies in his homeland. The 12 others, 
They die going to the nations, going to places. The understanding that they took from this passage, you keep going. You get to every one of those ethnies. You keep pressing. And some of them made it as far as India. Some of them pressed into foreign lands. Some of them stepped outside of the Roman world. But they kept going and they kept pressing. And we follow them through church history. A Christian who does not recognize the good and healthy pressure to be moving outward and onward to these groups, those languages, those ethnies, is missing a critical component to what the original audience understood. We keep going. We keep pressing for the glory of God among all peoples. And then the third thing that we can draw from this passage in Matthew 28 is the primacy of the local church. The end goal of the Great Commission is not to see just disciples made. But if you see in verse 20, there's this complete sentence that sometimes is neglected quite strongly, taught to observe all that Christ has commanded. And that means the gathering into local churches. Consider for a moment with me what activities can only be accomplished by local churches and not by individual disciples. Churches are commanded to baptize new believers, not summer camps, not wedding officiants. Churches are commanded to baptize new believers. Churches are commanded to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Churches are commanded to regularly gather. Churches are commanded to teach the Word of God. Churches are commanded to raise up, disciple, and confirm new elders and deacons. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is proclaimed to the world. If we're taught to observe all that Christ has commanded... That's the local church, friends. We keep pressing. By God's grace, we see disciples. We see converts. But if we don't teach them to become and to form into local churches, little outposts of light that will stand by God's grace for generations, we haven't fulfilled the Great Commission. We gather them into churches for the sake of what is being proclaimed by the Christ, by the one who gave the marching orders himself. But probably the most convincing evidence that the Great Commission is church planting. It's not sufficient. It's a good start to make disciples. Now let's gather those disciples into local churches. What's the most compelling evidence for that? What did the disciples do? What did these 12, these 13 do based on what they knew? Consider with me just for a few moments. I'm going to give you a few verses if you're taking notes. Take them quick. Um, but the spread of churches is the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome. Acts 2 is the birth of the church in Jerusalem, resulting from the day of Pentecost. Acts 11, verses 19 through 30, is the establishment of the church in Antioch. Acts 14, 23, elders are attached to churches. Acts 14, 27, the church is the basic Christian community that is gathered for any significant event. Acts 26, 18, those called to salvation through Paul's ministry find their place among those sanctified in the church. It's worth it just to hear this verse. It says this, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We're saved and we find our place in community. We find a place with those who are sanctified, with fellow believers who are walking the pilgrim's path with us. Oh, I hope you find great joy when we sing the final song today. 
Hark, I hear the harps eternal. And the text that goes with this song, as we cross the river, those of us who are gathered together, the river of death is what the author of this hymn is going to be talking about when we sing the final song. We're gathered together as those who are on a journey, those who are sanctified. Acts 15, 41, Paul in Syrian Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Acts 16.5, the result of the Jerusalem Council, churches are strengthened and grow in numbers. 1 Corinthians 11.18 and Hebrews 10.25, the assumption is that Christians are coming together regular, regularly and in person. 2 Corinthians 11.28, Paul's concern for all the churches is paramount in his thinking, listed right alongside his concern for whippings, stonings, and shipwrecks. Yeah, my knees are taking it. Yeah, I've taken some stonings. Yeah, I've gone through some beaten with rods. If you get into the details of those, and right alongside, how is the church doing? How's the church in Galatia doing? How's the church in Corinth doing? How's the church in Ephesus doing? Ephesians 1.15, Paul prays for Christ to strengthen the church. And the reason we see these things is because the church is not a man-made idea. The church was brought about and instituted by the triune God. We see the church as central to the Great Commission. So the goal is not only to see disciples made, but churches planted and matured so that in turn they may send out their own missionaries, their own ambassadors to plant other churches a established, mature, self-led, self-taught, self-replicating church is the goal of the Great Commission. Establishing churches, outposts of life. In the apostles, we see the marrying of these two imperatives. Go to the nations, plant churches. We go to the nations and we plant churches. That is the Great Commission. So we shift, if you've got your Bibles, turn over to Romans chapter 15, and we see this evidence, we see this goal of how Paul saw getting to the ends of the earth. Paul lays out his missionary strategy in Romans 10, 14 to 15, we're going to touch on that, but in Romans 15, he kind of pulls back the curtain a little bit. So let's do just a small walk down church history's pathway so we can kind of place Romans 15 correctly. Where is Romans 15, and specifically the book of Romans coming in? Church history tells us that Paul was imprisoned in 63 A.D. So he's imprisoned in 63 A.D., then he's acquitted of all charges, and then he made a trip to visit Titus on the island of Crete. He encourages him. And then he heads to this city called Nicopolis, where he writes the book of 1 Timothy and Titus. And from there he travels on to Spain, and some historians have him traveling as far as Britain. We don't know if he made it to both of those places, but that was his ambition, to head to Spain and possibly to keep heading on to Britain. But before he does any of this, so remember, 63 A.D., rewind six years, so now we're in 57 A.D., he writes a letter anticipating this trip. And he writes this letter, and he writes it to the church in Rome. And he tells them, that he's been imprisoned. He tells them what his doctrine is, what he believes, kind of like this is the gospel, this is the things that I hold too dearly. And then he asks them if they will support him on his trip. And this becomes the book that we find in our Bible called the Book of Romans. This really tight theological book that is also a missionary support letter. Paul is writing the Roman church and the functional end of the Book of Romans is Romans chapter 15. I translated Romans, and Romans had a huge impact on my own personal theology, 
But the end of the book of Romans, the, uh, chapter 16 is goodbye, say hello to so-and-so, I hope to see so-and-so someday. Romans 15 is kind of the end of the book of Romans. And so we look at this, and we look at the way that Paul structures Romans 15, and we're not going to go through the whole chapter, but as he gets to the pivotal point of why he wants the Roman church to support him. So let's pick it up in Romans 18, 19, and I'm going to take this in chunks because there's a certain feature to the way that Paul structures a lot of his arguments, and we'll get into that. So Romans 15, 18 through 19. It says this, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So Paul is saying here, let's just pull this apart for a little bit. Paul is saying that by the power of the Holy Spirit in his teaching and by miraculous signs, he's been able to see many come to repentance and forgiveness of sins. We have to be careful with these periods of time because when these periods of time, especially in the book of Acts and as we see the first century of the church, it's this very specific period in history that we can draw a lot of things out that are unique to that period of time. I'm comforted, though, that for the vast majority of Christian history, it is by the ordinary means of grace, specifically prayer, the teaching of God's Word, and the testimony of believers or the testimony of the gathered church that most often God has been pleased to work. There are the exceptions in history. And you know what we call those? Miracles. Those are miracles. But we don't base our theology on miracles, on the occasional. We base it on what we see in the whole counsel of God. And we're looking at this and we're praising God for the miracles that are happening there and these instances where God moves miraculously and we praise God that through his taught word, people are coming to saving faith. But Paul makes this remarkable statement, and we're going to focus a little bit more on this today. He says this, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, he has fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. What does he mean? So you got, if you ever look at a map and you look at Illyricum is what modern day Albania is. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, he's saying, I'm done. There's nothing more to do in these places. This is a remarkable statement. You've got to catch the strength of what he's saying. And he doesn't stop there. He doubles down on what he's saying. So if you're reading the book of Romans and you're reading this particular passage, Paul is using what's called a chiastic, some people will call it a chiastic pattern. And what that means is the main point of his argument comes in the middle. The supporting points come on the side, the main point comes in the middle. North Americans do not use chiastic patterns. We like to have the punchline at the end of the story. The punchline comes, and that's why you don't eat a quarter pounder before you run a marathon. Like, that's, that's the punchline. And he never talked to her about her diet again. Like, the, the, the punch comes at the end. But for most in the first and second century, if you're making an argument, it comes in the middle. So we're going to pull this middle out, and we will get to it in the way that we understand reading main points today. So let's skip over verses 20 through 22, and we're going to get to verse 23. So Paul has just said, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, he's fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Now listen to him as we pick it up in verse 23. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, 
and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Wow! He's doubling down. From Jerusalem to Illyricum, there's no more work to do. And now, since there's nothing left to do in these regions, consider if someone stepped into our church pulpits today and said something like, from San Diego to Florida, there's nothing left to do. That's a pretty audacious statement. That's a pretty strong statement that Paul is saying here. And here's the more shocking part. Most church historians estimate that from Jerusalem to Illyricum, less than 2% of the population had even been exposed to the gospel. Not got saved, had even been exposed to the gospel. How can Paul make such an audacious statement? How can he say things like this? You know the reason? Paul saw churches as the evidence of a completed mission. There's a church in Jerusalem. There's a church in Antioch. There's a church in Ephesus. There's a church in Corinth. There's a church in Galatia. There's a church in Illyricum. There's a church in Laodicea. There's a church in Rome. And so I press on. I, Paul, being the pioneer missionary, press on to places where there is no church. Paul measured the Great Commission in churches. The local church to him was the finish line for seeing places reached. He didn't measure it in number of converts. He didn't measure it in, did they have exposure to the gospel? Was there a church there? If there's not a church there, that's an uncompleted region. Do we have a church there among those people? And then Paul, the pioneer missionary, moved on. Paul also, we have to take into account though, cared about local churches that were weakening Areas that didn't have strong churches. Areas where the gospel wasn't being preached clearly. We see this most clearly in the book of 2 Timothy when he's positioning his key disciples to get to particular places. Titus, he sends to Crete. Strengthen that local church, Titus. Make sure that there are elders named in that church, Titus. Strengthen it. Be there. Because Titus, you're going to a church that still needs more help. Timothy, you're going to go to Ephesus. And you're going to strengthen that church there. Paul saw himself in a particular role of going to those places while still strengthening churches that had been established. That doesn't mean he didn't care about established churches. What it means is that for him in particular, he pressed on. Titus and Timothy's helped strengthen churches that were existing and were there. But always it was the centrality of the local church that Paul saw as the goal of the Great Commission. And so we see him say this part, I'm going to skip to, or in verse 15, 24, he says this also, as he's asking the Roman church, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Remember, he's pressing on to go to the place where there's no church. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Paul is asking the Roman church, will you get behind me? Will you support me financially? Will you support me in prayer? Will you encourage my heart as I'm getting ready to press into this area? So established churches, going to plant a new church in a place where there is none, 
This is where he's pressing into this territory. And I want to just take a little bit of a tangent here as we press into how the Great Commission is accomplished in Paul's time and our time. John Piper will say, based on this passage and one other passage that I'm going to read to you, if you believe this book to be true, if you believe this book is true in relation to the Bible and the Great Commission, you have three options when it comes to the Great Commission. Number one, you're a goer. You're someone that says, I believe that my local church, my elders, I believe that I see in Scripture that I should take this gospel somewhere where it has not been before. I should strengthen a local church further out, or I should go plant one where it's never been before. I'm a goer. Or number two, you're a sender. You're someone who lives in a particular manner, who has a particular vision for the Great Commission going to the ends of the earth, and you're going to live as a sender, someone who is actively participating in the Great Commission by the way you live here. Or number three, you're a disobeyer. Those are your three options, according to John Piper. I like to say his name because you can blame it on him if you get mad at me. Goers, senders, or disobeyers. There's no fourth option. You're a goer, you're a sender, or you're a disobeyer. And he pulls from this passage this idea that there is a group of people in a church like this, I'm going to say roughly about 70% of you, that are going to be senders. And the question is whether you're going to be good senders or whether you're going to be bad senders. To reinforce what we see this from, let's, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 10, 14, and 15. And Paul again reiterates this two-part equation for seeing the fulfillment of the Great Commission. It says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? These are all rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions are questions that everybody knows the answer to. They can't. They cannot. And then verse 15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? There's those senders again. You got the goers. Let's go. Know the word of God. Let's preach. Let's establish this church. But then there's this group that stands behind them. Yesterday, we focused a lot on the goers who go, and by God's grace, they stay long enough to see churches established and how we raise up from Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church those who will go to the ends of the earth. But Paul presents this two-part equation and he speaks to the goers and to the senders. And so three marks, if you're taking notes, of good senders. What are the marks of those who stay? Number one, they raise their sons and daughters to be goers. They raise their sons and daughters to be goers. Those who are good senders raise their sons and daughters in a particular way that mom and dad will be proud of you if you end up leaving us in your 20s and your 30s. Mom and dad will stand behind you if our grandkids end up learning Indonesian right alongside of English. Mom and dad will structure putting the kids to bed, they will expose them to the stories of Amy Carmichael. They'll expose them to the biography and the autobiography of John Payton. Mom and dad are expecting and hoping and praying, maybe you'll be the one to take the gospel to the Amdu people, to the Niksek people, 
to the Gatamambu people, three places that I know today that have been asking for missionaries for at least seven years, and we have no one to place in them. Maybe you'll be the one to do these things. This is not an easy task. I remember reading, it's on your bookshelf, I pray that you grab that autobiography of John Payton and bring it back after you're done so your other church members can read it. John Payton, this famous Scottish missionary who would go to the island of the New Hebrides, we talked about him a lot yesterday, and he would lose his first wife within six months. Then he would remarry and he would stay on the island and eventually he would see over a dozen churches planted and nearly the entire island come to saving faith and become converted to Christianity. This man who would give so much, he would have 12 children and seven of them would not live past the age of two. And he came back to Scotland. He was a Scotsman. And he stood up in a church and they were singing this very famous hymn and the chorus of the hymn goes like this. Give our sons and daughters glorious to the nations abroad. And Peyton got up and he said, everyone loves to sing that song as long as they're talking about somebody else's sons and daughters. Don't talk about my sons and daughters. Talk about your sons and daughters. Do you raise your sons and daughters in a way to where you see them as temporary entrustments, temporary, you're a steward for a time but you're stewarding them towards something greater, something greater in this life and in the life to come? Or do they have to have a house on the block where you're at? Do your grandkids have to be there for every church service, every Christmas service? Is family becoming this deceitful idol, probably one of the most unquestioned idols in Christian circles today in the West? Family. A wonderful thing that God has given us. Be careful that it is not this unbreakable thing. Are we raising our sons and daughters to where we will take you to XNA Airport? We'll do it with tears in our eyes, but we will take you because we know that the nations still stand without the gospel. Good senders raise their sons and daughters to aspire to be goers. Number two, good senders live in such a way that the Great Commission affects their life here. Good senders live in such a way that the Great Commission affects their life here. There was a famous missionary. His name is William Carey. He's called the father of the modern missions movement. He was the first missionary to put down in a document. It's a really long name. It's called an inquiry into the evangelization of the heathen. And then there's another 15 words that are added onto it. It's a long title. But he comes up with this seminal document. And from that document thousands of people ended up starting going to the nations. He was an Englishman. But before he left, he had two friends, Andrew Fuller and another brother, and these three men gathered together, and they started talking about sending William Carey to India. This was unheard of. It was nine months on a ship to get from London all the way across to India. And he was about to leave, and he was going to be the first one going. And he said, I'm like someone going down a well, and I'm going to hold on to the rope. And what was the rope? The rope was his friends and his family and the home church. I'm going to go down this well, but you have to promise me that at the top of the well, you will continue to hold the rope. You're going to let the rope down, and we're both going to be hanging on to that same rope, but you have to promise to hold on to the rope as long as I'm holding on. Will you hold the rope? Guys, I firmly believe this, that someday when the king returns, he's going to ask all the people who went down the well, 
Show me your hands. How much did it cost you to go down that well? But he's also going to ask those at the top of the well who are letting down the rope, show me your hands. What did it cost you? Not what did it cost Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. Not what did it cost your men's and women's. What did it cost you? Were you faithful? Were you someone that I saw the nations as important, so I drove an older car. I lived in a smaller house. I had a skinnier 401k for the sake of the nations. You may have some six-year-olds, some seven-year-olds, some 10, some 15-year-olds, some 25, some 35-year-olds in here today that may end up taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Will you faithfully stand behind them? Will you be there for them? Will you continue to be there for them year after year after year after year? Or is it only those who go down the rope that must accumulate scars? Will you have scars when the king returns? Will you have scars? Because the Great Commission meant as much to you here as it did to those who went. And then finally, the marks of a good sender. They're faithful church members. Good senders are faithful church members. The Bible knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christians that go out apart from the local church. It also knows nothing of faithful Christians who are not faithful to the local church. If you're asking much of the young men and women that are going to go to the mission field, and this is what I teach at my school, Radius International, we teach them that it will cost you 10, 15, 20, 25 years of your life to see a good, strong New Testament church planted. Reckon with this cost or don't even get on the airplane. This is what it will cost. But if we're imbibing that into our young people, if we're pressing that into our goers, what of our senders? I praise God for Jack and Mary Alice Griffin from Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church, my church. Been a member there for 27 years. And when I left in 2003 and I came back in 2016, they were still sitting in the second row in the exact same place in their chairs. I praise God for Shirley Friedman, Mar Friedman, who died while we were overseas, but who stayed, who would write us once a month, how are you doing? They'd send me double A batteries because we couldn't get double A batteries in Papua New Guinea and they'd send me Tapatio hot sauce on a regular basis. I praise God for Dave Johnson who used his travel agency to get us our tickets each and every time we had to go back. These faithful church members and to get up and I had tears in my eyes as I come back each time and I see them still there, still faithful. It doesn't matter if there's a Republican or a Democrat in the presidential office. It doesn't matter if you gotta wear masks or you don't have to wear masks. If you got the COVID, those are incidents. Are you a faithful church member? Will you be here when your goers come back? Or are we in and out? Well, I don't like how many songs we sing. Ah, it's a service to get Are you faithful? Are you faithful? Because we're asking a lot of our goers, what of our senders? What of those who stay behind? Will you be a faithful sender? And so we arrive at the main point of what Paul was saying. Come back to 15 verses 20 through 21. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has been named, lest I build, not where Christ has been lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. His thrust, his overarching be, I go where no foundation has been laid. I go where no foundation has been laid. 
And this two-part equation that we hope and pray as you grow and continue to come together as a church here at Chappie Crossing Baptist, those who will go and those who will send to see places where no foundation has been laid reached with the gospel of God's glory. We know that there are about 3,100 languages that still exist on the world today that have no gospel, no disciples, and no church. Nothing. They know nothing of Christ. They know nothing of what he has done for sinners. They know nothing of their need for a savior. They see general revelation all around them. The sun rises, the sun sets. The seasons go, the seasons go. But they don't know enough to be saved from their sins. And we press on to those areas. We press on not as individuals. We press on as churches to see the gospel brought to those areas. When we were two weeks after we had finished, and I'll close with this, two weeks after we had presented the gospel in Yembe Yembe, uh, we had a knock at the door. And the Yembe's were night owls. They stayed up usually till about 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. And um, our house was built up on these huge posts. So we had big old posts, four rows of them. And our house was eight feet off the ground just because snakes and other critters can't get in that easily if it's a little bit higher off the ground. And so the Yembe's helped me build the house so they knew exactly where we cooked our food. They know where we kind of sat in chairs and they knew where we slept. And so they had this long pole and whenever they needed to get me up at night, they would take this pole and they'd pop the bottom of the floor. And I burned that pole and threw it away, but it's the jungle. They found another one. And <clears throat> sure enough, laying in bed at night and fall, totally asleep and boom, boom, bottom of the floor and your head kind of bounces off the floor a little bit. And so I wake up, go to the window, yell out the window, who's there? And it's a typical Yembe response. It's me, it's me. <laughs> I know it's you. Who are you? And he goes, it's me, your tribal father. And we were adopted into clans when we first got there. We talked about that a little bit yesterday. And so this is a big deal. This is my tribal father who's one of the chiefs of the village. There's four chiefs. And so I go outside, and I've got my flashlight. And in Yembe it's really rude to shine your flashlight in people's faces. You shine it on their feet. They can recognize all 1,200 Yembe Yembe's by their feet. And of course, they're looking at my feet. They can recognize me. I can't recognize anybody. And so I'm inching the flashlight up to the kneecaps. And I, okay, recognize those shorts, recognize that belly button. And it's seven Yembe Yembe's, seven men who we believe had been converted. They understood the gospel and they were saved from their sins. And so they're up there and I go, what, what's, what's going on? Did somebody get bit by a snake? Is somebody getting hit with malaria really bad? Usually when there's emergencies, they'll come get us. And they said, no, uh, we've come to ask you when we're going. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, if what the book says is true, and we've been reading the book, and if what the book says is true, our sister village across the mountains, Changriman, they're going to the place of fire, right? I said, yeah, that's true. So when are we going? Will it be tomorrow or will it be the next day? When are we going to Changriman to take the talk to them so they don't go to the place of fire? Two weeks old in the faith. And their first impulse, where are, when are we going? When are we going to those places? Friends, I've been back in the United States five years now. And I've had a really large church and a really wealthy businessman uh, offer to pay to fly the MBMB elders over from MBMB all the way back to the United States and to have them do their missions conference. And I would 
never do it for two reasons. Number one, it would just blow their world apart. Like to get on an airliner would be too much. It'd be culture shock coming out. I mean, to see Costco, it'd, it'd be over the top. But number two, I told the wealthy businessman, I didn't have the heart to tell it to the church, but I told the wealthy businessman, brother, you don't know what you're asking. Because remember the Yembis who will stand up during any time someone's teaching, and if they don't like what you're teaching, will yell something out. To this day, I was telling this to Blake, when a young elder in training is teaching, and if he's teaching something that's not in line with Scripture, the older saints in the church will yell, the canoe's turning, the canoe's turning, which means he's veering away from Scripture, and poor guy's just wrecked for the rest of the service but I would be worried if the Yembis came back to the United States and they stood in front of a congregation who have had the Bible in their tongue for 500 years they would probably ask something to the effect of when are you going when are you going there's a good healthy Christian impulse to always be thinking through when are we as a church going to be going to the ends of the earth when will we be pushing out our people to see those places that still stand in darkness? Let me pray with you. Father, we praise you, Lord of heaven and earth. We praise you for your gift to us, the great grace that was given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We were dead in our trespasses. We were lost. We weren't struggling. We weren't fighting for air. We were at the bottom of the ocean. And you and your grace reached down and sent us the only one who could carry us from death to life, from darkness to light. We are privileged beyond millions to have this word in our language to have good teaching, to sit among a body of believers that are sanctified, that are made new, that are justified in your eyes. Father, may you give uncommon courage to the ones who sit in these chairs. Courage to live for the world to come. Courage to raise sons and daughters as soldiers of the king. Courage to walk away from the American dream. Courage to live in a way that is completely countercultural in our day and age. Father, may they be faithful to your word. May they be faithful to your bride. Father, may you give them what they cannot produce on their own. And Lord, someday when you return, may we with pride show the scars that we have for seeing your name brought to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.